0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 11 verses. We're going to read not just verse 1 to 11, but also our text, which you find in the following verses, 12 to 28. So first then, the first 11 verses to give us the context, and then we move on to our text in verse 12 and following. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, As to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if we, it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an Adam all die... So in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed His death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has this ever happened to you? You have this sense that perhaps you are not seeing things as well as you should be. So what do you do? Well, you book an appointment with the eye doctor and he checks you out. Of course, after waiting a few months for an appointment... Yes, and it's true, your vision is not what it should be. A pair of eyeglasses or contacts are ordered, perhaps even eye surgery is prescribed. And then what happens? Well, you come out of the store or the clinic amazed. You suddenly see things that you never saw before. You see better, clearer, farther, farther. Sharper. It's as if a whole new world opens up before your eyes. Well, to some extent, this is also what happens to people who put on the glasses of Holy Scripture for the first time in a believing fashion. They begin to see as never before. And they get a completely different take on life, reality, the present, and the future on life's purpose, aims, and values. Their outlook, you might say, or their worldview changes. It changes radically. And often it clashes. It clashes with their old outlook and their old views, What they once valued so highly, they now discard. What they once prized, they now reject. What they once embraced as gospel, they now regard as folly. My beloved, that is also to some extent what you find in our text of this morning. As we continue our series on 1 Corinthians. You can say that here we have a case a real case of worldviews in conflict. And what is it that brings that conflict about perhaps more than anything else? It's the matter of the resurrection. It's how Christians view deaths. It's how we look at life. It has to do with the present, the short present, and the long future. And so, beloved, to see that even more clearly I preached to you on the following theme the resurrection of the dead. We're well, first of all going to look at the awful implications of its denial, and thereafter the wonderful declaration of its reality, and then thirdly the final confirmation of its triumph. Well, beloved, last time, last Sunday, we turned our attention to the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and we heard the Apostle Paul stressing the great news of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And I reminded you how that particular news had transformed the lives of the Corinthians. And I also reminded you that this particular news was attested to by literally hundreds of eyewitnesses. They all saw Jesus Christ after he had been raised from the dead. And finally, you were reminded as well from our text how this particular event had made a deep and lasting impression on the Apostle Paul. He calls himself the least of the apostles because he is the one who persecuted the church of God. But even though he is least, there is a sense in which he perceives God's grace even more. But then, beloved, as time went on, doubts began to surface among some of those Corinthian believers that the Apostle Paul had met and had preached the gospel to. They dusted off what they used to believe and they said, well, perhaps our forefathers had it right after all. Maybe in spite of what we believe, maybe there is no resurrection of the body after all. Maybe dead is dead. Maybe we go back to dust and stay there. Now we know from various sources that among the Corinthian population there were various different views about these particular matters. Some of them were influenced by Greek ideas and believe that as human beings we are composed of two distinct parts, body and soul. And that actually these two parts are of unequal value. And that at death the body is shed like the skin of a snake and is left behind to decay. Whereas the soul, the soul which is immortal continues to live in some vague sort of spiritual way. But you know, other Corinthians were not so sure. And they simply opted for the view that dead is dead. There is no immortal soul at all. There is no life after death. Now, beloved, regardless of which particular view you adopt, the result is the same. It all boils down to a fundamental rejection of the resurrection of the body. It all amounts to this, the body doesn't rise, it rots. And now that's what some Corinthian believers were toying with. And they were even so bold as to assert there is no resurrection of the body. Does Paul agree? Of course not. And as a matter of fact, you can read that he disagrees most emphatically as as he reflects upon these pagan ideas, he sees that they have huge, negative, disastrous implications for the Christian faith. And what kind of implications? Well, first there is the fact, he says in verse 13, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If death claims everyone, then death must have claimed Christ. If our bodies cannot and do not rise, then the same goes for the body of Christ. Was it not truly human? Was it not made up of flesh and blood? Was it not real? Well, if it was, then it too is still in the grave. And Christians have a dead Savior. Now, beloved, if that is the first implication, it's also, you could say, the biggest implication, but In turn, there are others that flow from it. Look, for example, at verse 14. There you have the second implication. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Paul, Peter, and the others, and you can read that in the book of Acts and elsewhere, they they all climax their preaching with the glorious news of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But if Christ has not been raised, what remains of their preaching? It's false. It's bogus. It's a lie. It's devoid of its heart and its center. It's, it's robbed of its climax. It is useless. And the third implication, Paul says, is so is your face. If the preaching of the apostles is useless, then your faith is useless. When the Corinthians first heard the gospel, it was a gospel that proclaimed a risen Lord and Savior. And they believed it and they made it their own. And it changed their lives and their outlook and they told everyone that they met about it. But if Christ is not risen, That's it's all useless. All this faith and all this believing, forget it. Fourth implication, if Christ has not been raised, we are found to be false witnesses about God. Wherever Paul and the other apostles went, they preached there is risen Christ and and, and you know, they did so on the basis of what they themselves had seen and experienced and heard and, and touched. They had been in contact with Christ after His resurrection. They were convinced that He was alive after death. And they told people everywhere that this was the case. But if it's untrue, then they're not just liars They're actually lunatics. They're people who believe in something that really never happened. And that makes them false, unreliable witnesses. Fifth implication, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. I remind you that death came into the world as the result of sin. Now, if death remains, then sin remains as well. In short, you can say nothing has, has changed. The world still lies under the curse. It's, it's as if the Savior has never come into the world. All of his work is nullified. And the sixth implication, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. You know, one of the things that the gospel had done for the believers was give them great comfort in the face of death. Whenever believing family members, friends or relatives died, there had always been this glorious hope of the resurrection of the body. True, we're grieving as Christians, people would say, but we're grieving in hope. But then if there is no resurrection, all those who have died are lost, gone, nowhere, no more. And seventh and final implication, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then, then you know all of us who have hoped in Christ are to be pitied more than all men. Do you know any people who put their expectations so high as we put them? Any people who have such exalted hopes? Any people who are so confident about this life and the life to come? But you know, if it's all untrue, then it's we Christians who are going to experience the greatest letdown. It's like a huge balloon that gets punctured. Instant depression. Well, beloved, I hope that you begin to see how much is at stake here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is no minor teaching. It does not belong to the so-called non-essentials of the faith, if there are any. Now what Paul writes about and what we are dealing with this morning is basic, fundamental, critical and crucial. If Christ has not been raised, then we should stop this worship service. Forget all about this baptism, sell this building, disband our fellowship, go our separate ways, ditch our faith, and live just like the world lives. And then we would be justified in adopting the slogan, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die anyway. That's the implication. But then notice, beloved, after pointing out the implication, the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, but you know, this is not the way it is. For look at what he writes in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You know, it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, never mind the doubters and the skeptics and the unbelievers. Never mind the godless. The truth of the matter is that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. He lives. And notice too the tense that he has used in verse 20. Sometimes we read in the scriptures that Christ is raised or has risen, but here the tense is he has been raised. Now you should know that when it is put like that, it means that that someone else is involved. Someone else has been active here. And that's true. God the Father has been active. He's the one who is described as doing the raising of his son. And you know what this is really about? It's about the fact that long ago, God the Father looked at this world and he saw the mess. And he said to his son, you have to do something about this most dismal situation. I am sending you to claim, clean up the mess on the earth. And when you've completed your work, when you've suffered, and crucified, killed, buried, then I will raise you up again. You see, Christ is the recovery agent of the Father. And the reward for his successful and perfect redeeming work is that the Father raises him from the dead. But then... And that's the really good news for us. This is not a resurrection, beloved, in isolation. No, this son gets to take his rewards along with him. He represents, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I think you know that that expression, first fruits, comes from the world of agriculture and plants. And it has to do with harvest. Harvest. Here you have this field that you have planted, be it grain and corn or something else. And, And the growing season progresses or starts and the seeds begin to sprout and the plants grow. And the fruit ripens and soon it's time for cutting or plucking. And indeed one day the farmer will go out into his fields and he will cut the sheaves or pluck the fruit. He'll be taking in the first fruits. But of course, he doesn't stop there. No farmer in his right mind ever stops there. The first fruits are not the only fruits, but rather they represent the beginning of the harvest. They're but an introduction to the bounty that is sure to follow. And so the Apostle Paul says, so it is with Christ. He's raised, he's raised as the first fruits and his resurrection represents the start of a great and glorious harvest. His resurrection means the resurrection of all his saints. And that includes us as well. Beloved, is it not a most marvelous thing to know that through faith in Christ we are united to Christ? The Apostle Paul says it elsewhere and he says it often, namely that, that those who believe in Christ Jesus are united to him in every respect. We're united to His suffering. We're united to His cross, to His death, to His burial. Yes, and we're also united to His resurrection. Indeed, we're so united to Him that we become more than conquerors over all the enemies, the foes, the obstacles, the hindrances, the hurdles, the setbacks. And the dangers of life. And this is so, not just because Christ is the first fruit. But also, Paul adds, because he is the second Adam. When in verse 21 Paul states that for sin's death came through a man, he is referring, of course, to Adam. Adam is, so to speak, the author of death. He's the man who brought death into the world. But he's not the only man. There is another man, a better man, and he brings life. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The second man counteracts And does undoes all the damage done by the first man. Yes, and to leave no doubt that he's speaking about Adam, Paul writes: "For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive." And then notice the Paul's use of the word "all" in Christ in Adam all die. That expresses a general rule. All who are descendants of Adam, and that means each and every one of us, share one and the same fate. We all die. As we all eat and sleep and breathe, we all die. You may not like it, doesn't matter. If Christ doesn't return, a hundred years from now we're all going to be humanly speaking in a cemetery somewhere, right? At least our, our bodies will. That's a rather sobering thought. And that applies to all. But you know, there's not just one all here. There is also another. And the other all is infinitely better. And it goes like this. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Does Christ raise everyone? No, Paul says you need to be in Christ to be alive. And those who are in Christ, those who believe in Him, those who profess faith in Him, those who place their trust and hope and confidence in Him, they will be saved. They will be raised. All who are in Christ will be made alive. And is that not a glorious prospect? Is that not something to remind yourself about every day and and something to hold out to your children and to your grandchildren as well? You know, every day circumstances have a way of reminding us that we've not left the old Adam completely behind, but at the same time the Spirit also has a way of assuring us that by faith we are in Christ. Yes, and that being in Christ, that's the most precious thing in all the world. Sometimes we say to our children, especially as another school year is lurking around the corner, you need to do this, you need to get that. You need to do your homework, you need to get an education, you need to secure a good job and you need to get a good salary and a good position. Understandable. But do we also say to them... You need to be in Christ. You need to be in Christ if you really want to live well and if you want to live forever. Do you tell your children this life is only a drop in a bucket? It's soon gone. Flies away. It's like the grass, the scripture says. They can work and they can educate themselves and they can do all kinds of things, but it's soon over. And therefore we need to do more than tell them to develop their talents. We need to remind them that the most precious thing in life is to be in Christ. That's the key to right living today and to perfect living tomorrow, and forever. Yes, and the Apostle Paul makes that clear in the last verses of our text. After insisting that Christ is the first fruits, he lays out a certain program, and it begins in verse 23 with the words, Then when he comes, those who belong to him In other words, Christ is already the first fruits today. However, the full reality of all that will be will not be seen until the day when he comes again. For you know, when he comes again, he'll not come alone. No, all those who belong to him will come with him. When he came the first time, he came alone. When he comes again it's at the head of a great and glorious company. Yes and when he comes it will signal the end. And it will indicate the end of his work and of his task. Paul says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And that expression, all authority, dominion, and power, stands for the enemies, the evil forces, the obstacles, the things that need to be removed and destroyed and defeated. And along with them, there's another enemy that needs to be destroyed as well. And who is that? Well, Paul declares the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the last enemy that you and I face. Death is also the last enemy that Christ faces. But not only does he face it, he destroys it. And as a matter of fact, he handles all his and our enemies and he defeats them all. He puts them all under God's feet. Paul uses the language of Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Yes, and when that is accomplished, then it is handover over time. Then he hands over the kingdom to God then his work is done. And then he can rest. And then he can be the son again in that special sense. Paul writes, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who puts everything under him so that God may be all in all. Interesting, only here does the Apostle Paul use this kind of terminology. Only here does he make clear that when his work is done, the Son will take his rightful place again. It's the Father's prerogative to rule over all. It will be the Father's pleasure to rule over all as well. And then to rule over all in a world that has been remade. Over a creation that has been renewed. And over a humanity that has been reborn. And you and I, beloved, we can see this even today. We see it if and when we put the glasses of Holy Scripture on and look through them in faith. And then we confess, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen.